sometimes in the introduction to sermons, we pastors get a chance to confess something that it's possible that you may already know. I can be a pretty competitive person. All right, I thought more of you knew. Okay. I come by it honestly. Thanks, Dad. Thanks, Grandma. In Arkansas, we would periodically visit as a family for uh, my grandmother, and the first thing that came out was the UNO cards. And once we were done with UNO, then came the dominoes. What a competitive thing we were. It was cutthroat, and it was go by the rules. I'm right, the rules say so. And thankfully, over time, as we had our own family and, and participated in board games and other things, there's this thing called the internet, which if someone pretends to lose the rules because they want to go by house rules, we have laptops and we can bring up the right rules. <laughs> we know what these right rules are. So I'm thankful that we can learn them. But we're continuing today in a worship series of laying down and lifting up. And today we're talking about self-righteousness. I'm sure we each have at least a tangential knowledge or understanding of this word righteousness. And it gets misunderstood because of how we, God's people, can characterize it. See, righteousness is understood as being morally right or justifiable. Jesus had a whole lot to say about that. Can you agree? But he drew the line at self-righteousness. If righteousness is a quality of being morally right and justifiable, self-righteousness is a little different. And we're going to talk about both today. Now, the passage that we have continues in the book of Luke where we are in the 11th chapter. I'm reading from the Common English Bible. <clears throat> and we're starting with verse 37. There's a red Bible in your pew if you want to uh, read this. We're reading 37 through 54, so you might want to get the book out. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee invited him to share a meal with him. So Jesus went and took his place at the table. When the Pharisees saw that Jesus didn't ritually purify his hands by washing before the meal, he was astonished. <gasps> the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisee, clean the outside of the cup and platter, but your insides are stuffed with greed and wickedness. Foolish people, didn't the one who made the outside also make the inside? Therefore, give to those in need from the core of who you are, and you will be clean all over. How terrible for you Pharisees. You give a tenth of your mint, your rue, and garden herbs of all kinds, while neglecting justice and love for God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. How terrible for you Pharisees. Woe, you Pharisees. You love the most prominent seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplace. 
Woe, you Pharisees, you are like unmarked graves, and people walk on them without recognizing it. One of the legal experts responded, Teacher, when you say these things, you're insulting us too. And Jesus said, How terrible for you legal experts. You load people down with impossible burdens, and you refuse to lift a single finger to help them. How terrible for you. You built memorials to the prophets whom your ancestors killed. In this way, you testify that you approve of your ancestors' deeds. They killed the prophets, and you build memorials. Therefore, God's wisdom has said, I will send prophets and apostles to them, and they will harass and kill some of them. As a result, this generation will be charged with the murder of all the prophets since the beginning of time. This includes the murder of every prophet, from Abel to Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the holy place. Yes, I'm telling you, this generation will be charged with it. How terrible for you legal experts. You snatched away the key of knowledge. You didn't enter yourselves, and you stood in the way of those who were entering. And as Jesus left there, the legal experts and Pharisees began to resent him deeply and to ask him pointed questions about many things. They plotted against him, trying to trap him in his words. The word of God among us, the word of God within us. Thanks be to God. I don't know about you, but angry Jesus makes me pretty uncomfortable. He's not talking about me, is he? <clears throat> Luke is sharing a part of Jesus' ministry, this portion in, in uh, chapters 10, 11, and 12, when Jesus is traveling around the villages and preaching. And in these chapters, he's consistently bringing lessons and parables that caution against self-righteousness and how that self-righteousness can get us into trouble. Jesus is invited to dinner by a Pharisee. The Pharisees, you might recall, are those who held this strict adherence to the Mosaic law, the rites and the traditions. Jesus accepted, walked in, and sat down. And the Pharisee was amazed to see that he did not wash before dinner. Now, we have a different interpretation of what that means today. Back then, for the Pharisees, washing before dinner was not about hygiene. It was about holiness, a way to show that you respect and follow and honor the Mosaic law. I am holy because I follow the law. That's what the Pharisee held. And seeing that Jesus did not wash, did the Pharisee say anything? No, but he must have had some kind of body language or facial shock that indicated his self-righteousness. You've seen that, right? I've been told that I don't have the best poker face. <laughs> there must have been some... Oh, you guys didn't get that, did you? <laughs> we believe you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, good. I am righteous because I wash, therefore you are not righteous. But Jesus, not needing any words of condemnation, those would certainly come later, Jesus shares about the outside of the cup 
and the inside of the cup. He's sharing in general about not looking on the outside, the law, but the inside as well, for together this comprises our body, our faith, our righteousness. And after Jesus shares about what being clean really means, inside and out, he moves on to these six woes, three for the Pharisees and three for the scribes or the lawyers. Three for the Pharisees. You tithe with mint and rue and herbs. You pay attention to all these small details and give your tenth of what's produced. But you don't know how to pull back and see the fundamental principles of God's law, justice and love of God. You seek out that seed of honor, more interest in the reputation for righteousness than for living the way that God wanted you to live. And this woe about unmarked graves that I read, it was considered unholy, unclean to walk across a grave, so they marked that with lime plaster over the top of them so that warning people that a grave was there and allowing them to walk around it lest they defile themselves. Jesus is really getting to it here that the outward reputation of the Pharisees doesn't warn people about the Pharisees' morally unclean behavior. And then the lawyers get in the picture, you heard that, by stating, whoa, Jesus, wait, wait, wait. I mean, you're making us look bad too. So Jesus responds, I'm not done yet. Here's three, especially for you. You're adding burdens beyond the Mosaic law, and you don't do a thing to help those suffering under those burdens. You're overwhelming people with demands that do not speak to the core of God's love. You build tombs for the prophets. In a Jewish work titled Live of, Li Lives of the Prophets, the burial place of each prophet is identified and as is the elaborate tomb that honors them. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Amos, Micah, grand tombs, grand tombs. But Jesus asks, asks, do you remember what they taught you? And finally, you scribes, you lawyers, you've taken away the key to knowledge. This one's particularly biting because the scribes are the ones that are to understand, help the people understand their faith. They're writing this all down. But for the distorted interpretation had the opposite effect of following God's will. They kept people further and further away by this misinterpretation of what was being documented. Righteousness is just not knowing about what's right and speaking about it, but giving and and not, not just giving the appearance of righteousness. You ever heard that phrase, being clothed in righteousness? In context, as written in Isaiah and Psalm and Revelation and many more, it's a metaphor related to getting the finest linen that clothing can buy. It's a metaphor for giving the abundance of grace and accepting it from God, the grace we receive. But I fear that I hear more and more the metaphor that I'm putting on the clothing of righteousness and that's where it stops. I'm doing all the right things, putting on righteousness, therefore I'm righteous. But that's not what Jesus shares here. He makes it clear that what's on the outside and the inside is what's important. 
If you clean the outside of the cup, but what's inside is greed and selfishness and more, well, we're just trying to make it look like we're Christians. Just trying to make it look like we're following God. We haven't let our lives be transformed and molded by God's grace. So the first lesson I hear in these passages, remember what the prophet Micah shared. You know what is good, to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. That's righteousness. Start by getting it right in your heart, by loving God and loving neighbor. Ask questions, cry, get angry, be joyful. God is asking for all of us, our whole and genuine selves, just as we are, not some made-up person putting on clothes of who we think God really wants. God is asking for all of us in our righteousness. Now, if righteousness is the quality of being morally right or justified, what is self-righteousness? Self-righteousness is being convinced of your own righteousness, especially in contrast with the actions and beliefs of others. Oh, my goodness. Anybody thinking of any examples? It's not just that I'm right. It's that you're wrong. You don't believe as I do, and I have the right interpretation. Therefore, you are unclean, and I am holy. Self-righteousness is like pointing fingers. Except we sometimes forget that some are pointing the fingers, and others are having the finger pointed at them. It can be a person or a group, and the only way to counter when we lay down this self-righteousness is to lift up humility. Let's talk, about pointing, let's talk about pointing the finger first. This is a lot of what Jesus is saying in the passages we read. He all but uses the word hypocrite, doesn't he? Why is it that it's so easy for us to expect perfection in others when we ourselves are imperfect? I forget where I read it, but I think it was Ken Blanchard in a book titled Lead Like Jesus. He's encouraging leaders to be vulnerable, to admit mistakes, to offer grace when mistakes are made. He has a great question that reminds me when I need a dose of humility, which is often. Why is it that we look outside the window? We look out the window for perfection and in the mirror for good enough. Why is it that we look out the window for perfection and in the mirror for good enough? Are we expecting the same for ourselves when we seek perfection from others? Do we seek compassion or make assumptions about how others act? Do we lump people into the good and the bad? Trust me, it's a hard fall when we expect righteousness and holiness from others and are not willing to seek the same for ourselves. We read in the Gospel of Matthew a familiar caution. This is from the message paraphrase, but I think it hits to the heart of the matter. Don't pick on people, jump on their failures, criticize their faults, unless, of course, you want the same treatment. That critical spirit has a way of boomeranging. It's easy to see a smudge on your neighbor's face and be oblivious to the ugly sneer on your own. 
Do you have the nerve to say, let me wash your face for you when your own face is distorted with contempt? It's this whole traveling roadshow mentality all over again, playing a holier-than-thou part instead of just living your part. Wipe that ugly sneer off your own face, and you might be fit to offer a washcloth to your neighbor. Here is a simple rule-of-thumb guideline for behavior. Ask yourself what you want people to do for you, then grab the initiative and do it for them. Add up God's law and prophets, and this is what you get. What would it take for us to take a breath, assume that everyone is doing the best they can, assume that if someone is acting in a way that doesn't make sense, we, there must be something we don't know. What would it take for us to show compassion in that instance? Humility, that's what we pick up, humility, walking humbly with God. We listen more than we talk. We listen with intent to learn and understand. We listen with compassion. We talk face-to-face -to, -face to build trust with each other, and we look to see the face of God in each other because it's there. We just forget sometimes. There's an abundance of God's grace to go around, and it's especially important to embrace when we're the ones pointing the finger. Accept the grace, be forgiven, change your heart, and you will live according to God's holy word. Which brings me to my final point about self-righteousness. Sometimes we're trying really hard, humbly of course, to learn about others, to try to understand where they're coming from with a particular decision or outburst. <clears throat> Other people might be pointing their fingers at us, saying you're wrong. And despite our genuine and honest efforts, it's just not working. We're not even trying to convince someone to change their mind. God will help with that in the right time and when each person is willing to embrace it. We're just trying to find a way to live and love together. Jesus had an answer for that too. Again, in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 10, Jesus gives his disciples instructions to go out into the village and share all that Jesus had been teaching. Heal the sick, drive out the spirits, share the stories that I've shared for you. And here's how he counsels them if people are not welcoming or, or listening. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off of your feet. I feel as if for many years we've been sharing the gospel trying to understand why some of our Methodist siblings are unaccepting of our LGBTQ siblings. Not just their bodies, but their hearts, their spiritual gifts, their call to leadership in this church. At times, some of us were the ones pointing the fingers. For years, it's gone on, these finger pointings and accusations, threats and inaccurate assumptions. At times, we've been the ones pointing the finger. At other times, we've cringed to have the finger pointed at us. It's been exhausting. And if it's that way for me, I can't imagine how difficult it's been for our LGBTQ siblings, hearing for so long that their identity is not true, that their gifts are not needed, and that they are not really 
part of this church. It's been hurtful and so much less loving than what God intended. Last Sunday on March 4th, the delegates of the North Texas Annual Conference gathered together in Plano to discuss a, revolution, a resolu resolution that allowed 41 churches in the conference to disaffiliate from the United Methodist Church. Each one of them had honored the rules that were set for disaffiliation. The disaffiliation primarily had to do with the LGBTQ community. We were, in fact, each dusting off our shoes and moving on. So we gathered in the sanctuary of Christ United Methodist Church for one last time, laity and clergy, the delegates of the annual conference, to share communion and worship. Eleven people from Arapahoe stood with everyone else as we passed the sign of peace. Peace be with you, we shared for several minutes. We shook hands of persons in the, all the rows around us, and we stepped into the aisle to shake hands and hug those across the aisle. Peace be with you, we shared. Our new bishop, Bishop Signs, understood that so much righteousness and self-righteousness had been claimed. But I think he also knew and wanted to impart that no one has a monopoly on God's love. No matter whether we stay United Methodist, which we are at Arapahoe, or move on, the Spirit will continue to move, and God's love will continue to prevail through any darkness. The gospel story will continue to be shared, and lives will be transformed by that story. And yet, we still needed to shake off the dust. Bishop Signs planned this in a special parting rite and commendation <clears throat> that I want to read for you today, the bishop read, like Peter and Paul, Paul and Barnabas, and the first ecumenical council of the first century church, since way before we were here, we have reached the point at which we feel called to continue our faith journeys separately. Though our paths diverge, we acknowledge, and the people responded, there is one body and one spirit, just as we were called to one hope of our calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. But each of us was given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. As we part, we do so with mercy, recognizing the grace entrusted to each in our Lord Jesus Christ and extending to one another the right hand of fellowship. As the whole congregation, all the delegates, clergy, laity, visitors stood for that blessing, we were surrounded by voices. We made assumptions about those near us in the pews. We made assumptions that they thought as we did. We assumed that they were like us and not disaffiliating. But humility has a way of showing up. Because we heard many, many voices rise and share the commendation to those who were leaving. And as we stood with the overwhelming number of delegates who have chosen to stay United Methodists, and then we sat down. And then we got the visual I think we needed. When we exchanged the sign of peace, the shared words of peace be with you, with those around us, everyone was standing. 
But at this blessing, only those who were staying and then those disaffiliating stood. And it was an entire row in front of us, an entire row back of us, with Arapahoe delegates seated who stood to recite a blessing to us, those of us who choose to stay. The blessing was ensure and certain hope of the resurrection to eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ. We commend to Almighty God our brothers and sisters in Holy Spirit. We had shared the peace be with you, but we were having to ask ourselves, did we really mean that? Were we so self-righteous that we weren't able to offer that peace after disaffiliation? Can we continue to share the message, continuing to love our neighbor? So here's what I took away from that moment. It was a moment of grief for a lot of people I call siblings, a moment of pain for all who have been involved in that process. It's a moment of blessing and of grace. Here's what I took away. Jesus tells us to shake the dust off our shoes and move on, but what he doesn't say is don't let the door hit you on the way out. Jesus tells us to shake the dust. We might have to separate, but we can't be so self-righteous that we don't leave room for the Spirit to work. Jesus states while on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. And the author of 1 Peter, in his first letter to those Gentile Christians who had been exiled to Asia Minor, shares with them and with us, love them anyway. But this anyway has a way of being one of toleration, not one of ingratitude, but of love. It's a hard thing to ask. It's very hard for ourselves and certainly for those who have been harmed. How do we love someone who hated us? This, friends, is our current challenge in the righteousness and will of God. We love not to follow the rules. We love because we recognize that each person is a child of God, even the ones who have wronged us and others. Shake off the dust, yes, but love them anyway, from your heart and not just clothed in righteousness. Love them anyway, humbly and with grace. May it ever be so. Amen.